The following podcast is sponsored by English Heritage. Let English Heritage support you and your class this term with a unique and memorable school trip. From the Stone Age to the Cold War, discover any of their 400 properties and let your students stand at the places where history happened. Find out more at english-heritage.org.uk forward slash learn forward slash school dash visits. Ten sixty six. It's probably the most memorable year in British history, and arguably the most significant. But beyond the bloody Battle of Hastings that took place on that Sussex hillside over a thousand years ago, how did the Norman Conquest shape life in this country? And how can schools engage students with the topic across different strands of the curriculum? To find out, I met with Roy Porter, senior properties curator at the English Heritage. And Sam Brown, head of history at Bede's Prep School near Eastbourne on the south coast. I'm reliably informed what Roy doesn't know about the 1066 Battle Abbey and the history surrounding the site simply isn't worth knowing. While Sam has taken her students to visit the site on numerous occasions, to set the scene, I asked Roy to describe the events which took place as the invading Norman army of William, Duke of Normandy, met the English troops led by King Harold. Battle Abbey is built on the site of the Battle of Hastings, and I think it's fair to say that the you know, the Battle of Hastings probably remains the most famous battle in the history of England. Um, I think most people have still heard of the date 1066, and on the 14th of October, 1066, at the place later known as Battle, you had the armies of King Harold II and William, Duke of Normandy, confronting each other in a conflict which by contemporary standards was very unusual. This is a battle which, according to the sources which describe it, lasted all day, a battle which started at around nine o'clock in the morning and continued until dusk. So this is a day of continuous fighting of the most bloody uh, kind imaginable. And it's a battle where King Harold had marched down from London and taken a position on, on the top of a hill on rising ground. And William had marched to meet him from Hastings. And William's army had to fight up that hill to approach Harold's position. Harold's soldiers were all standing on foot, massed in a huge line, a um, what's known as a shield wall. So they're standing behind their shields, sporting their ferocious double-handed battle axes you know, ready to kick out this invading force. William's army, by contrast, is far more mobile. He has infantry, he also has cavalry as well. And his task is try to knock Harold out of the battlefield and really to try to kill Harold. As Harold has taken the throne at the beginning of 1066, William claims to be the rightful king. William knows if he loses the Battle of Hastings, his chances of ever taking the throne are gonna disappear. If Harold can hold firm, keep his ground, win the day, he's virtually guaranteed to maintain his throne. But over the course of this day, you have, as I say, a bloody battle, and all the sources which describe it uh, talk about some of the most horrendous violence imaginable with sharp-edged weapons, crossbows, bows, lances. And this battle lasts for hours. It's not until the close of the day that the English line finally breaks. And it breaks, we think, because King Harold is killed. And of course, 
There are all sorts of stories about the death of Harold. I'm sure many of our listeners will know about the, the famous arrow in the eye. Interestingly, the earliest description of Harold's death is a description which actually suggests that he was hacked to pieces on the battlefield. Uh, the arrow in the eye comes along a little bit later. But the important point uh, in terms of Battle Abbey, the site visitors see today, is that in order to commemorate his great victory and to atone for the bloodshed there, William the Conqueror, as he became, founded an abbey on the site of his victory. And that's what visitors see today. So when they go to Battle Abbey, they walk around the site of this great conflict, this terrible conflict, this history-changing conflict. They also walk around the remains of a medieval abbey too. Well, thanks, Roy. Yeah, you've paint, painted a brilliant picture of quite a gruesome picture there. Um, it's, as you said, 1066 is such a significant date that everyone remembers. Is the significance because of the, the ferocious battle or the influence that that point in history had on years to come in Britain? What, why is the Battle of Hastings such a significant event, do you think? Well, the, the battle, battle of Hastings is significant as part of a bigger event, and that, that's the Norman Conquest. You know, there are lots of bloody hist battles uh, in English history, particularly medieval English history. And if there was just one battle and nothing else changed, then the Battle of Hastings would just be another historical footnote, if you like. It's the fact that the Battle of Hastings results in the death of King Harold and forms part of a series of events which will culminate in the coronation of William the Conqueror on Christmas Day of 1066, which makes it important. But what makes it all the more important is what happens as a consequence of William becoming king, because effectively the political leadership of England changes over the next 20 years. We know that by looking at Doomsday Book. It shows us that the, the leading English families have been effectively dispossessed of power over the next 20 years. Um, and when you look at who the most important landowners are in England after the Norman Conquest, they're all Norman or French. You know, they are, they, the, the, the traditional English ruling elite have been wiped out of the picture, if you like. That's important, obviously. There are also big cultural shifts which happen uh, after the Norman Conquest. One such shift is the fact that the focus of attention is now north-south across the English Channel whereas previously there have been much closer cultural links with Scandinavia for the English. Now the kings of England also own large amounts of land in France, and they're effectively subjects of the king of France when they're in France as Dukes of Normandy. And of course, the tensions inherent in that situation would play out for hundreds of years, would feed into conflicts such as the Hundred Years' War, um, and would, would uh, style um, or influence international relations as well. The, the English elite is French-speaking after 1066. The, these new Norman incomers are all French-speaking. Uh, England becomes part of a Francophone um, group of countries. Um, the language which is spoken today, uh, the language we speak today, has so many loan words from French because of the Norman conquest. And there's another change as well. If you were to walk across the countryside of England after 1066 and look at the buildings all around you, um, there are probably three major types of buildings which you would note as being particularly different to before 1066 or wholly new. 
One of them would be parish churches. Parish churches were rebuilt at a huge scale after 1066. The other, another one would be the great cathedrals of England, the major churches, the big abbey churches, because what the Norman conquest entails is a big change in church governance as well. Effectively, the leaders of the English church are changed. And there's a widespread renewal of building stock in cathedrals and abbeys. The third big change, though, um, is one which would both physically impress you, but also probably physically overawe you as well. And that is the rise of the castle. The castle is effectively a Norman introduction into England. And it's one of the means by which the Normans hold down this country with relatively few people. They use the castle as a means of conquest. And we know from contemporary English sources, this was something they were unused to in England, something they weren't expecting and something which really shocked them. So, yeah, Roy, it's obviously a, it's a incredibly significant event in, in the history of Britain. Um, Sam, from a history curriculum point of view, is this, is this as significant? How much of your teaching is, is focused on it and how does it um, perhaps lead into other subjects and, and what you do? It's massively important um, the, for lots of different reasons. Um, sequentially, for the children learning about uh, the history of England, obviously it's a massively important event, um, but also as a perspective from the change from what was Saxon England to uh, the Norman conquest and the changes that it, it brings about. So it has a you know a huge educational perspective, um, and its relevance can't be sort of underestimated. Um, for the children understanding old England, Saxon, and um, the changes that the Normans bring about, uh, changes from the language, culture, um, social structure, things like the feudal system. Um, the Doomsday Book, I mean, our first public report, recording, um, it, it record rather, it's, it's a hugely massive um, event and the whole part of the normal conquest is really important as well. So when this, when this topic comes along in the, in the school term, Sam, are you able to kind of collaborate with um, other subject leads and are there areas where you're sort of working cross-curricularly? Yeah, so... Um, I'm really lucky because at school we dedicate the whole of year six to the, the sort of medieval realms and we start off with 1066. So um, I begin with teaching the children all about Saxon England under Edward the Confessor um, and then we can sort of lead into his death and what it brings about um, for England. Um, but I also tie it in very much with our English department, our art department, our drama department. Um, we do so many different things. Um, when we are looking at uh, the four contenders for the throne, for example, so prior to the battle, um, the children, we use drama to act out the four possible contenders, what they can do. Uh, what they're bringing to um, the role of king. Uh, we do posters for advertising, uh, the job of king and what it, it incorporates. Um, 
we uh, the children write speeches as why we should possibly choose them. So there's lots of things that we do even before we get to the site. Brilliant. Yeah. I was sort of hoping the drama element might be a big sort of reenactment, but um, <laughs> probably we safer to. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so, Roy, can you tell us a little bit more about the site itself? Um, I mean, I'm sure people can sort of visualize the Abbey if they haven't been there already, but what are some of the sort of lesser known parts of the site and perhaps lesser known events that surrounded all this? Well, the, um, the first thing to say is the Abbey's a ruin. You know, so the, the, the buildings at the heart of the Abbey are ruined, so the, the, the site of the Abbey Church. And the Abbey Church is important because according to tradition, which was established fairly shortly after the battle, the high altar of Battle Abbey Church was placed at the point where King Harold's body was found after the Battle of Hastings. So there's this claim which you, you find by the early 12th century that the Abbey Church is right at the centre, or the crisis of the battle, if you like, the focus of the very end of the battle. Um, but, you know, as visitors go around today, as I said, said before, you know, visitors going to Battle Abbey will see the site of a battle, but it, it doesn't look like a battlefield. What it looks like is um, a, a medieval monastery. Um, and by that, I mean there's a 14th century gatehouse that, you know, with, with um, battlements on it. So that looks a bit like a castle. And visitors can go all the way to the roof of that and they can explore that building and gain an understanding of the history of the medieval site. And they, as they walk around the ruins of the of the abbey, they they might pause to think, well, why is the abbey a ruin? Um, and of course, one of the really important aspects of its history is the fact that in 1538, in the reign of Henry VIII, the abbey was suppressed. And so, part part of the story it tells it isn't just 1066 the Middle Ages. It also tells the history of what happens in the 16th century, another period of great historical change, when a really important institution founded by William the Conqueror is closed down by a later king and actually gifted to one of Henry VIII's best friends, a man called Sir Anthony Brown, who was a courtier of King Henry VIII. And in fact, if, if visitors go to Battle Abbey today, they can cross the road and go to the Paris church in battle and see Sir Anthony's tomb. They can actually go and see where he's resting. He rests in battle itself. And so the reason... Um, the abbey is ruined because is because Anthony didn't want to keep the abbey church. He didn't want the chapter house. He didn't want a lot of the buildings to modest those. But he kept the abbot's house, one of the finest parts of the monastery, and he turned that into a country house. So the later history of Battle Abbey is that of a country house. As you walk around it today, you'll see the remains of aristocratic gardens. You'll see an early 19th century dairy. You'll see a 19th century walled garden. That's telling you something rather special about what's happened to this site over the 950-odd years uh, it's, it's, it's existed. So it starts off as a place of bloody conflict. Eventually, it becomes an aristocratic country home. And today, of course, it's a place we can all enjoy. Yeah, wow. Okay, it's a real sort of historical onion with layers and layers mm. and layers. Brilliant. Um, so, Sam, you've you've been to the site. You, your sort of school's relatively local. You've been a few yeah. times. Peaceful. 15 times, did you say? If, <laughs> think guess. how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how do you use the site when you're there and um, what are some of the favourite ways to explore the space and some um, perhaps ideas that pre people wouldn't have thought of? Um, so when we visit, um, and this is year six predominantly that I take, so I take the whole year group, 
and we, we've done quite a lot of the backstory. So I'll have covered the death of Edward. We'll have looked at the four contenders, as I said before. We'll have also looked at the Battle of Stamford Bridge, which is a fantastic story, and, the, and they love all the blood and guts and gore with that, particularly the chopping up of Tostig. So they just love that. Um, and they know that um, William has arrived um, prior to the Battle at Pevensey. Um, and what we do when, when we visit is we do a detour via Pevensey. So they've got a feel for the distance travel from Pevensey to battle. Um, we talk about him bringing flat pack castles and they, they love the connection with Ikea. They think it's fantastic um, theory. And then when we arrive, they've already got the story up until the night before the battle. So when you arrive um, at battle, um, you go through the sort of visitor's entrance, the shop, but it's sort of part of the castle grounds. So they're already getting the feeling for what they're arriving at. Um, and as Roy said, it, there's not a lot there, but that's not the point for the children. It's the first time they're visiting an actual battle site where something so significant took part. So they really, we really sort of build the excitement of it. Um, and what I do is I break them into two groups. And the first group, we tour the site. And as we go around the site, the different points, we talk through the battle. And they just, they get a sense of being on that field. They get a sense of how the battle unfolded. We reenact it. They particularly love the idea of... Uh, William's army running up the hill towards Harold's army in the shield wall. We we do the various cries that they that they they call out. So they really enjoy the site. Although there's nothing, as in there's no battle things there. There's some brilliant things as you go around. There's some uh, wooden statues showing the different points of the site. So the children really enjoy all of that aspect. It's a long walk, but it's brilliant for the, for them to really feel the atmosphere of what it must be like. So that side of it, um, and building the story as we go round, and as I say, they reenact it, you'll see I have two sides and then they they all try running up the hill and what it must have been like carrying the armour and the swords. So they really enjoy all that. And then we move round to having done the battle, they then move round to the monastery site and we go into the buildings we talk about what it must have been like to be the monks at the time and the austerity of, of, of life. And then we finish up at the cathedral site and, and where, as Roy said, um, Harold's body is supposed to be. And then we have a massive debate. This was really interesting because they talk about did he die with the, the likelihood of him dying with the arrow in the eye or more likely being hacked to pieces? So it's always a really interesting debate where we're discussing uh, that. And then I introduce different sources of evidence. So for them as historians, budding historians, we begin to talk about the sources of evidence and, and how important it is as historians to sort of use these. And then obviously we walk across the last part of the battlements um, and then back. And then usually the second group do a workshop, which is the most fantastic thing. They go into one of the castle rooms and battle 
provide these amazing workshops that the children take part in. And then if they're not in the workshop, I take them into the museum. If you've not visited the museum, it's fantastic. Um, there's lots of different um, things for the children to try. Um, there's swords, there's shields, there's armor. There's lots of questions. It's massively interactive. It's really good fun. You quite often have to wait for the adults to move out the way before they can get on the thing. Um, and then there's a brilliant video, which is um, David Starkey does the voice of. And it always amazes me, the children sit absolutely wrapped listening to him talk about what actually went on. So there's, there's a ton of things to do. For a site that doesn't have a great deal, it's very atmospheric. And when you get there, it's just amazing. The children are buzzing when we leave there. They really are. Brilliant. Um, you, it sounds like you've done lots of, sort of creative things to to bring this all to life, Sam. Yes. Roy, from an English heritage point of view, um, what sorts of things do you do on the site to to get the engagement out of young people? Well, Sam, Sam has mentioned several of them already, and I have to say, I, I want to go on one of Sam's trips now. Actually, I, I, I think it would be sounds absolutely amazing. Um, well, I mean, the, the in, in terms of engaging young people, they, the visitor centre. Um, has a lot of things in it which are um, focused at school-aged people. So, for example, but when I say school-aged people, I think all of us have school-aged people inside of us, don't we? Yeah. So, it, you know, but, but I, we know that children particularly enjoy getting to handle weapons, for example, and there are weapons in the visitor centre which are safely secured, but children and older people like me can have enjoy lifting them up and feeling the weight of them, gaining an understanding of the materiality of the battle and just you know, how heavy these things were, what it was it been like to wear them, to wield them, to be hit by them. You gain a sense of reality from that. Um, the, the the film which Sam has mentioned, I think, is brilliant at very briefly reminding people of the narrative of the battle. So if they watch that before they go around the the, um, the parkland, around the Abbey site, they'll remember the, the story of the battle you know, as you understand it from start to finish, then having that in your mind as you go around, you can begin to repeat that as you get to various points in the landscape. And as Sam mentioned, one of the things we did, we introduced uh, in 2016, were these timber figures and they're chainsaw cut figures which animate the battlefield, if you like. So they're, they're not too many of them, they don't overpopulate it. But what it means is as you walk around, you'll, you'll see one in the distance on the horizon, you can approach it. And they tell the story of the battle as well. So we have the, the English and we have the Normans and we have a mounted Norman knight, we have an archer. And as you go around, uh, you can look at the difference in, in style of weapons. You can tell the English from the Normans because the English have moustaches and occasionally beards. The, English are clean, uh, the Normans are clean shaven. Um, and that just does enough, I think, to pique the imagination, to, to, to ju just allow a, a mental image of what was on that battlefield in 1066 and you know to take that and then do the sort of thing sam's talking about to, to to sort of begin to analyze um the evidence for what happened and that's that's what makes the battle of hastings so interesting for me as a historian you know for a lot of battles of this state we have if we're lucky one decent description of the battle for the battle of hastings we have four or five very graphic descriptions of the battle but what's fascinating about them is they're written from different viewpoints, slightly different times, 
and they contain irreconcilable information. And it means that what Sam's students are doing as year six students is exactly the same as academics are doing. They're trying to look, take these different sources and evaluate what they're saying and, and try to understand where their biases are, try to understand where they're reliable, where they're not so reliable. So it's, it's lovely hearing this, that, you know, we've got school children doing exactly the same as academic historians trying to understand the Battle of Hastings. Thank you. So Sam, um, in with trips such as this and, and perhaps other trips that you do as, as a department, um, how do you sort of maximize the learning and make sure, um, other subjects are involved? What are the, some, some of the nice cross-curricular approaches that you've, you've seen? Um, we do an awful lot. Um, it's great to do history trips, um, but for the learning to be embedded, it's best if it can be across the curriculum. The children benefit far more from it um, and they learn far more from it. So I'm thinking about different ways, what we do, particularly with um, year six as some examples. So um, one of the things we do, where we come back from the battle, um, in conjunction with their English studies, they we we do really old-fashioned thing. We tea stain paper, cut holes in it, and then um, we've invested in some old-fashioned ink pens with dips. You know, really old-fashioned thing. And the children write letters home from either the Norman or the Saxon perspective, and it's brilliant because we make them plan them in pencil first. So they have to think about, it's really pulling on their English skills um, and obviously presentation as well. But it's a really good way for them to remember the battle and what went on, but also showcase their English skills. Um, we also, another English thing is we, we look at the changes to the English language. So going from predominantly Latin to French, so the old English um, speak to then the introduction of new French words. And they love all that. They, we do an English lesson on that. So the idea of beef and pork and where these words come from. So again, an, an, another English aspect. Um, and then for art, I mean, we do some incredible stuff with our art department. Um, we knock up some very basic shields. We've done it in card and we've done it in wood. Um, and then the children create their own shields um, from either a Norman or Saxon perspective. So how the shape of the swords are uh, shields rather, how the shape is different. And then, then we look at heraldry ideas as well, what goes on them. So they have a great time with that. Um, I've even, with our food tech department, we've even made Mott and Bailey castles out of cake. Um, I bit off a bit more than I could chew with that one, but... Um, they make the whole premise of a Mott and Bailey castle. I give them all the um, basic ingredients and so they then have to make the Mott and the Bailey with biscuits and um, icing and things. Bit of a mess, but they eat it afterwards, so they love that. Lots of drama leads in. We recreate the battle. So, again, our drama department have been brilliant with looking at what they need to include and then letting the children write their scripts and, you know, who's going to die in the most blood-curdling way, who's going to be uh, William, who's going to be Harold hacked to death uh, or other with the um, arrow in the eye. 
Um, we also do um, English. Again, we recreate a newspaper. So they look at the idea of a broadsheet um, and writing up the winners of the battle. We've even done video interviews. Top Trump card, another great one with soldiers. So are you a third, a house car, archers? I could go on. Brilliant. Tons and tons of cross-curricular yeah. things you can do. Great. Oh, some really nice ideas there. I'm glad there's a reenactment re in there. I was holding out for that. <laughs> yeah, there um, is. <laughs> um, so to, to finish then, Sam, what, what advice or have you got any sort of top tips for staff who might be thinking about planning a really sort of nice cross-curricular trip, either to battle or perhaps more, more generally a, a, a history trip or cross-curricular trip to somewhere local to them? Um, I think I was given this advice when I became head of history, I was given this advice and it's always look at the time scale spent traveling to what, to the time you're going to be at the event. So you've got to maximize your time at wherever you're visiting. And so that was, that, that's always the premise I start from. If it's going to take me four hours to get there, is it really going to be worthwhile? And if it is going to be worthwhile, how, what am I going to maximize with what we do there? Um, you have to visit the site yourself. Um, you can't do them long distance because you have to look at the nuances, risk assessments and all of the things you have to plan for. You have to look at the nuances of the, of the site you're visiting. Um, and really what I do I, I I speak to the people there. You, know, you take advice from where you're going to, talk to them about what they can offer and how they can make it niche for you and, and for the group you're taking. Once I've done that, it's down to the planning stage, looking at what we're going to get out of the visit and how then I can incorporate that cross-curricularly. Um, don't ever be afraid, though, of visiting places. I found, as a history teacher particularly, the children get so much out of their visits. History comes alive when you visit the places um, and you see for yourself. And we've done some amazing trips. We do... Battle is one of our favourites, but I do the Tower of London, Westminster Abbey, um, Hampton Court. Um, I can go on HMS Victory, for example. I mean, we go all over the place. And the children, when I ask them about their year, it's always the trips that make the difference. It really stands out. So my advice, do it. It's worth the aggro of all the organisation and the risk assessments your children get so much out of it. Definitely, yeah, especially coming out of a period where trips haven't been quite as um, feasible for, for reasons you know we all know about. Brilliant. Thanks, thanks both of you. That's been a really interesting discussion and I'll, um, I'll let you go though. We've, we've all learned a lot today. I'm going to be telling everyone that the, um, the Norman invaders in fact in invented flat pack furniture. That's my take home for the day. Um, Sam <laughs> <Pen> Roy. <Castle>. <laughs> <laughs> Sam and Roy, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you very much.